0: as we think about this particular theme of lament i wanted to share a number of quotes with you go out each day with the attitude that something good is going to happen to you when negative thoughts come the key is never verbalize them no weapon formed against me will ever prosper i will live out my days in good health with a clear mind With good memory, with clarity of thought, my mind is alert, my senses are sharp, my youth is being renewed, you must prophesy health, prophesy a long and productive life. Your words will become a reality. If the size of your vision of of your life isn't imitating you, there's a good chance it's insulting to God. If you want to change the direction of your life, change the de- declaration of your lips. These quotes, and many like them, come from the two leading false teachers of our day. These quotes highlight their false views of suffering in the Christian life. In the Word of Faith movement, and the heresy known as the Prosperity Gospel, There is no room for suffering. These two individuals, uh, both Stephen Furtick and Joel Osteen, uh, demonstrate to our own thinking a worldview that is contrary to Scripture. For them, they do not have a theology of suffering, but rather a theology of prosperity. Their gospel does not hold water because their gospel has no place for difficulty. Rather, they seek to teach their churches and their congregation to simply speak the truth, and it will become a reality. They're mo- no different than any other motivational speaker, both secular or sacred. But more importantly this morning, as we think, as Christians, we want to go to God's Word for our own theology and understanding of suffering. And the idea I hope to communicate to you this morning is that suffering is a normative experience in this fallen world. That as Christians, we will suffer. And that sometimes, by God's strange providence, we will not see relief from our suffering this side of eternity. And we must guard against a wrong theology of. Temporal prosperity at the expense of eternal glory. This morning, I want us to consider, as we respond to suffering, to turn to Psalm 13. Psalm 13. Through Psalm 13, David gives us divine words to express our deepest sorrows. To lament, as we'll see this morning is to verbally express our complaints to the only complaint department there is, and that is the throne room of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven desires to hear our complaints, to hear our laments. And David here in Psalm 13 gives us an individual lament for circumstances where the psalmist is on the verge of despair and death. He has come to the end of the line, the end of the rope. It is the end of Him. Unless God intervenes, He is without hope. We'll see in just a moment that this psalm is most likely attributed in the superscript to King David. And there were many ways that David faced trial and difficulty. And it's important to remember a number of things. Number one, that David was Israel's greatest king. If there was to be one person in Israel that was to be seen as the prosperity gospel's sort of chief king, it would be King David. He was a prosperous king, but he was a king who also faced many trials. Through the murderous assaults from King Saul, Uh, To the difficulties at home among his brothers, or even to the horrendous rebellion of his own son Absalom, or even to the loss of his closest and most best friend, Jonathan, David faced many, many difficulties in his life. One could say that most of our own experience and suffering, King David faced in his life even as we look to the greater Son of David and his sufferings. Yet this song, as we'll see, does not attribute to a specific event, thus allowing anyone in this room this morning to make this their personal lament before God. In other words, we have divine, inspired instructions on how to complain. On how to complain. Now, now, for some of us, it comes quite naturally, I know. I am a pastor, after all, and I hear about them. But have you ever wanted inspired words to complain to God? Well, what's wonderful about this psalm is it gives us license, it gives us opportunity, it gives us words to express life's deepest sorrows. And to do it in a way that honors and glorifies God, I believe. Well, I invite you to turn to Psalm 13. It's found on page 453 in the Black Pew Bibles provided. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to take that one as our gift to you. Uh, We commend its reading and study. Invite those around you to help you understand that Bible you have in your hands. Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord... Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Brothers and sisters, suffering is a normal experience in this fallen world. And as Christians, we turn to the Lord to lament our circumstances and trust in His future deliverance. In short, this psalm leads us from desperation to delight. From a place of total and utter despair to a place of bountiful delight. And the purpose of our time this morning is for us to learn how to lament in hope. And these seem to be polar opposites. These seem to be contrary terms. Lament and hope. But we find them both. As David begins in lament and ends with hope. That's what we want to do in our time this morning. As David leads us from desperation to delight in three steps. So if you take notes, there's three points this morning. Step number one. Be honest in your lament. Be honest in your lament. Biblical lamentation is brutally honest. There is no sugarcoating lament. There is no version of lament that is sort of spiced up and made look better. It's either lament or it's not. And lamentation, to lament to God, is to be honest to God about your circumstances. Number two, the second step, humble in your prayer. You ought to be humble. David goes from lament to prayer. The journey from lament to delight, from desperation to delight, that journey must go through prayer. You cannot go from desperation to delight apart from prayer. Prayer is the road to delight. And this is what David teaches us. He takes us through this journey. And lastly, it lands in hopefulness. Hopefulness in faith. Uh, We see David go from desperation to delight because of his hope in God. So, through our journey, we want to take this path. Number one, we see in verses one and two David's honesty about his lament. Four times, David says, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, how long? David expresses the length of his despair, the anguish of his soul. He expresses not only the desperation, but also the expiration. He is in a desperate place, but he is also in a place where he's about to expire. He is at the end four times. How long, how long, how long? In other words, we could say it in in a sentence, it's enough, it's enough, it's enough, it's enough. And how many of us, our testimony could be this morning... The times in our life where we cried out to God, it's enough. It's enough. It's enough. It's enough. How long? How much more? I don't think I can endure another day, another minute, another second. How long has this go on? How long, O oh Lord? Martin Luther says it this way, this is a prayer full of sighings and groanings of an affected heart in the hour of darkness and almost overwhelmed under that darkness with the extreme of grief and sorrow and driven to the greatest strait of mind. This is not a bad day. We all have bad days. This is much darker than a bad day. This is a life that has been overwhelmed by the dark clouds, a life that has not seen the sunlight in many, many months, perhaps many years. David has come to the end of himself, and he turns to the only one he knows to complain about. You know, it's something fascinating as we think about lament, is that in the Psalms, these lamentations do not turn horizontal, but they're vertical. It's instructive to us to know that David is teaching the nation of Israel and teaching us that the source is God. Now, don't doubt, many times in our life, our suffering is brought on by ourselves, that it's brought on by evil, it's brought on by other forces. But the Bible is clear that God is providential, that God is in control. And it's in these moments of difficulty and suffering that we want to change our theology to match our experience. But what David does here in the depth of his emotion, in the depth of his sorrow and anguish, is remind us that God is in control. He goes to the only one who can deal with his complaint. Notice his complaint. It comes... At each turn in verses 1 and 2, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? David feels that God is gone silent, that God has hidden his face. Now, often in your Bible, as you read, this hidden face of God is because of judgment. I don't believe that's what David is teaching us here, that somehow David is sinned and therefore under judgment. But rather, he's giving emotional expression to how he feels personally. I don't believe David has changed his theology about the omnipresence of God. God is always everywhere at all times perfectly. But rather, he feels as if because of his circumstances, God has left him. He has abandoned him. He has gone somewhere and that God is not with him. And thus, as you see, as a result of this in verse 2, David turns inward. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? (laughs) Lord, I'm tired of talking to myself about my problems. I'm tired... Of, of talking to myself about my sorrows. I feel as if you've gone silent on me and that you're far from me. And so we see then that David goes from the length of his despair to the depth of his despair. Not only has it been a long time, but we see that it has been tremendously hurtful. He feels as if his closest companion, the Lord God Almighty, has abandoned him. And more than that, you see at the end of verse 2 that his enemy is exalted over him. Look there with me, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David had many enemies. He doesn't mention which one he has. But, but throughout the Psalter, an enemy is anyone who seeks to do harm to godly people. David is seeking to live a holy and righteous life, and the enemy is the one who seeks to assault those who are following after God. And here David cries out to God, how long shall their assaults continually be exalted over me? How long shall they boast An enemy is one described here as one who hates the faithfulness of the singer, one who despises their faith in the Lord, even in their suffering. Oh, you've heard these whispers, my friend. I know you have. Why do you continue to worship a God who has allowed suffering in your life? You have friends like Job, you have friends like Job had. You know, your well-meaning coworkers and neighbors, your family members. Well, why do you keep going to church and worshiping a God who clearly hasn't been blessing you? I mean, look at all these things that have happened to you in your life. Why do you keep going and worshiping these? Why do you read your Bible? What good things have God ever done for you? Look at this and this and this in your life. The assaults of the enemy prevail against me. One commentator writes this, to cry out under the hidings of God's countenance is not sinful. Even the man without sin cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let us imitate his lowliness and his faith. We must guard our souls against the great error of inferring refusal from postponement of deliverance. We must give God his time. Friend, where do you need to give God his time? David was saying, It's enough, it's enough, it's enough. And God was saying, No, 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 no. Even Christ cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? We must guard against the sin of thinking that because God delays deliverance, that somehow He has forgotten us. We must never buy into the lie, but be honest in our lament that sometimes deliverance doesn't come in this life. That deliverance might not come tomorrow, but that there is coming a day, brothers and sisters, but it begins with honesty. We need to be more honest. You know how often we come in here with smiley faces, acting as if things are perfect, rather than being frank and honest, no, I'm really frustrated with God right now. I thought that I would be over this sin. I thought that this sickness would be beyond me. I I thought my marriage would be better by now. I thought my relationship with my children would have finally been healed. I I thought that my grandchildren would have been saved by now. How long, O Lord, must I wait for these things to come? Charles Bridges In his book on Christian ministry, writing to pastors, but yet still applicable to us this morning, says that sometimes when we sow seed, that that seed doesn't grow until we are in the ground. And the reality is that sometimes we sow seeds in our life, and it isn't until we're long dead that they begin to Sprout. We must begin by being honest in our lament if we are ever to be in a place of delight. He leads us first to honesty about our suffering with a clear articulation of the desperation that you are in. Friend, if, you are not, if you've not come to a place of desperation, you will never come to a place of delight because you'll never turn to the Lord in prayer. David had to come to the end of himself in order for him to come to a place where he had to depend upon the Lord. And that's what he does in verses 3 and 4. Again, David is at the darkest hour. The the clouds have been too long. And so he offers a prayer to God. Consider and answer me. O Lord, my God. Consider and answer me. O Lord, my God. Even in the midst of his suffering and even in the midst of his difficulty, David goes to the one who he knows he can seek relief from. He desires relief from his suffering. And therefore, he cries out, God, consider and answer. And he uses here the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh, L-O-R-D, all capital in your Bible, meaning Yahweh. He says, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, I'm coming to the God who said He will never leave me nor forsake me. I'm coming to the God who says that He is steadfast in love. This is the God I have come to, to my God. Notice here, David's personal nature and relationship with God is what he is using to leverage his prayer It isn't David's impressiveness, it isn't David's posture, it isn't even David's sorrow. It is rather the Lord's relationship to David through his covenant promise. It is never wrong, brothers and sisters, to cry out to the Lord when you are suffering and in pain. And here the psalmist, in mental and emotional pain, turns to the Lord in prayer. We sing it. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Why? Why do we forfeit peace? Why don't, why don't we have the delight in God's purposes? Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? Because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. You see? In the midst of difficulty, and suffering, David cries out for deliverance from God. Notice there is a threefold prayer here. He says, "Lest my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Light up my eyes," he says, "Lest I sleep the sleep of death." Some believe that David might be on his deathbed, maybe physically suffering here from some sickness or disease. He prays for deliverance from death. Lest my foes. Or rather, lest my enemy, verse 4, say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David prays that he might be delivered from death, from his enemy, and ultimately from his shame. What would it say if the king of Israel fell to his enemies? It It would bring about tremendous shame, not only to David, but to David's family. What does it say that the great king, the one after God's own heart, God's choice over and against the people's choice in Saul fell at the hand of a greater enemy? What would say that God isn't great, God isn't powerful, it would throw shame upon the whole nation of Israel. Again, one commentator says this, it is better to be praying in the whale's belly than asleep in the ship. It's better to be in the belly of the whale, he's referring to Jonah, than to be on the ship like the men were. You see, in the midst of Jonah's affliction, in the midst of his suffering, God brought him to a place that he might turn his suffering into prayer. Have you ever considered that perhaps the tremendous and great suffering that you have endured is not to make you feel that God is absent, but to make you feel that God is ever more present? That God is using the afflictions that you and I suffer so that we would trust Him more and not less. He's taking you to a place of utter shame and humility so that you might humbly pray to Him. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be honest to God about our hurt. God knows our hearts more than we do. Why would we ever be afraid to not only offer a complaint, but ask God to deliver us? Brother, sister, better to weep over sin now than to spend an eternity weeping without release. Better to weep over our brokenness, over our sinfulness, over our difficulty. Remember this truth. God will always give you more than you can handle. He will, and he does. God will never give you anything that you can handle. Friend, if you have a trial in your life, a difficulty in your life, an affliction in your life, and you come to it and you say, oh, I can handle it because you pull out some Bible verse that some Bible teacher taught you many years ago about how I can do all things through Christ in me, you missed half the verse. The only reason you can do all things is because Christ is in you, not because you're really impressive. God will never, ever give you anything that you can handle. If it's something you can handle, trust me, it is not from God. Three times, the Apostle Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He had a, he had a problem, a thorn in the flesh. I, we don't know what that thorn was. I think perhaps it might have been the fact that he murdered Stephen. I wonder if that did not torture Paul's mind as the one who had given the orders to execute a man, a man who loved the Lord with artists, heart, soul, and mind. But regardless, he had this affliction that could not escape him. And Paul writes, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see it? God's power is made perfect in weakness. You're strong, then God isn't. If you're weak, then God is strong. We need to cultivate as a people weakness. And friend, this is more countercultural than you realize. You see, we're taught to be strong. We're Americans. We can fight. We can, someone kicks us, we kick them back. Someone talk to us, we talk back. We're strong. We're big, loud, angry people. But as Christians, we're the opposite of that. We're weak. helpless. God is strong. God fights our battles. God will be glorious. You see, if you're strong, you get the glory. But if you're weak, then God gets the glory. This is why the Apostle Paul would say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then He is strong. You see, God is in the business of making His name glorious, not yours, not mine, not this church. God is in the business of making His name praised. You see, when we're strong, whether it's as a As a congregation or individually, then God will never be strong. But when we are weak and needy, on our knees in prayer, crying out, God, unless you act, then we die. Oh, friend, then he will be made strong. Just a word to men here for a moment. I think it's important to realize something in this psalm that I know is a particular proud, maybe perhaps, to your life. And again, I don't mean this universally. I don't think all men struggle with this, but, but I think some men do. And it's this truth. Friend, it's okay to cry. It's okay to cry. Friend, David was a warrior. Dude, like, ripped people in half, like, all right? He, he was a man's man, all right? He killed Goliath when everybody else was running scared, Right? He, he played, like, the harp while King Saul is throwing stuff at his head and trying to chop his head off. And he just, you know, silently played his little harp and, you know, did his little dig. So if anything was a man, this dude was a man, and, and look, I hear of the stoic men who never cry, oh, I never cry, i blah, 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 blah. You, you don't impress me. And I, I surely you don't impress God. Fathers, you are not leading your children well if you're not teaching your wife and children how to cry. You see, crying is an expression of genuine hurt and pain. It's someone who is expressing their genuine lamentation to the one true and living God. You see, sometimes words are unable to effectively communicate our pain, but tears are like a powerful river flowing from a heart under genuine sadness and agony. Now, I don't mean you become a crybaby, but I do mean that there is a place and a time like Psalm 13 to express genuine sorrow and sadness in our life. Friend, we ought to find that normal in our conversations, and we ought to find it through our prayers. In our journey through suffering, we begin with honest lament, but journey. this journey must lead us through prayer, and ultimately, as we'll see here lastly, to deliverance. Verses 5 and 6, the psalmist ends on a positive note. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see a psalm that ends not on a positive note, but most psalms uh, land from lament to some sort of deliverance. So, so the, the sort of flow of most of these lament psalms go from desperation to delight. So they sort of follow a similar pattern. Now, again, in a number of weeks, we'll show you one that, that changes this particular pattern and ends with uh, nothing. But here, this one ends in delight. And notice here in verses 5 and six, first. David's delight in God's past salvation. Notice the verbal change here, verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He bookends verses 5 and 6 with historical information about himself and about God. Now, in the Greek language and in the Hebrew language, you do not need to have the personal pronoun I because it's a part of the verbal structure. If you've ever learned Latin or French, you know that those pronouns are a part of the particular verb that we're being spoken to. And that's true in Hebrew. And so, but here Paul, or excuse me, rather David, makes expressly clear that I, emphatically, I have trusted in the Lord. Now this isn't a boastful statement, but rather one of confident declaration. I have trusted in the Lord. I have trusted in His stead Fast love. Here, David is giving particular expression to that passage we've been considering, Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, where Moses meets God, and there we see the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. What is David doing? He's doing what we do as Christians. In the midst of suffering, he goes to his covenant relationship with God, forged through his atoning sacrifice. And that's what we do. We make a beeline to the cross. In the midst of suffering and difficulty, we go to the gospel. We, we, we find comfort in the truth that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, or Uh, as we have sung this morning, how deep the Father's love for us. So we're doubting God's love. We think he's far from us. We're not really sure our circumstances. We're interpreting them. We think God must hate us. Look at this terrible thing that's happening to me. And then we're reminded how deep the Father's love for us, that while we were in rebellion, he eternally purposed to save us in Christ. God's promise through his covenant that he would never leave nor forsake his people. However bad life got they could they, they should never conclude that God had left them. This is what David I've trusted, I've depended I've relied on the Lord. He has delivered me at every turn along the way. So if David is singing this, for example, when Absalom has taken over Jerusalem and is sitting on his throne, he can remember all of those times when Saul through those murderous threats at him, and all those times that him and Jonathan spent time in the fields wondering whether or not Saul was going to execute him, and he saw God's salvation at every turn. God saved me from that, and he can save me from this. But he goes from past to present, ultimately to future. Notice what he says here in verse 5 and 6. I have trusted... My heart shall rejoice. I will sing. Notice how we go from past to present to to future. From his past faithfulness, David now turns to sing of God's future grace. God's grace is a future grace grounded in his historic grace. A grace that begins is a grace that keeps. A grace that never lets us go. He will hold me fast Friend, do you believe that, that he will hold you fast? Or is your understanding of the gospel that you hold fast to Christ? No, friend, it is the other way. As Kinder helpfully writes, so the psalmist entrusts himself to this pledged love and turns his attention not to the quality of his faith, but to its object and its outcome, which he has every intention of enjoying. In other words, David's trust isn't in himself, but in the one who is trustworthy. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Uh, Friends, in the midst of dark clouds, let us remind ourselves to be faithful. The call here in this particular psalm is to rely upon the Lord, to trust in the Lord, that when we are in doubt and downcast in soul, we ought to give ourselves to this God who will deliver. Let us not brush them off these downcast lives, but seek to lift them up. We have gone from a place of instability to solid ground. As we struggle through difficult circumstances, our emotions can often become unsettled through suffering. But remember, emotions deceive. Emotions are fickle. God's truth is unchanging. David goes from the unsettled emotional state he found himself in to a place of complete stability, not in himself, but in God. I will sing to the Lord. Why? Why is David so confident in his ability to have this future singing opportunity to God? Because David found strength in himself. Because David pulled himself up by his spiritual bootstraps? Because David is an awesome guy? No, because God has dealt bountifully with me. David, what is wrong with you? Did you take some medicine or something? What are you talking about? You just started off just like five verses ago whining and complaining and crying out, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, and now you're telling me that God has dealt bountifully with you? He has divine perspective, doesn't he? He has come to a place of solid ground because his perspective has changed. No longer is he looking at the immediate, now he is looking at the future. Now he beholds a a world that is unlike this world, a world that is not broken, a world that is not filled with suffering. The goal in all of our sufferings, brothers and sisters, in God's perfect timing, is to come to a place where we rest secure in the hands of Christ. The greatest way that you and I can find security is to look no further than to the cross. Where God finally and fully deals with the brokenness of this world. All of the sin, all of the sickness, all of the disease is finally and fully dealt with. And the promise of new life comes through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the empty tomb. And the ascended, and the, rather the risen and the ascended Lord. The, ex- the greatest expression of grief and sorrow is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus died the death that you deserved, he faced anguish and sorrow and pain and suffering, unlike any of us will ever or have ever faced for us and for our life. David ends by looking to a future place that he is inviting the singers, inviting you and I to look. Hope in tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, we know how the story ends. This changes the game. You know, in all of the teaching on the end times and the constant sort of uh, endless charts and books and teaching on Revelation, we kind of get in the weeds a bit, don't we? We, we, we even kind of back away from it. Oh, I'm not going to read that book. That's a little too much for me today. But if you read this book in its historic context to a suffering church, a church that is under excruciating anguish and pain and sorrow and persecution, and you hear this story in the midst of the darkest evil this world has ever faced, and they hear, hey, guess what? In the end, Jesus wins. That changes your perspective, doesn't it? That gets you out in the morning. That gets you out evangelizing and sharing the gospel. That gets you out in the morning to know that there is coming a place when there shall be no more suffering. As John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And behold, the, place, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell within them forever from a place of complete isolation and sorrow, my God, my God, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me forever? Will I ever be able to see you again to God's dwelling places with with, with man? And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a day, and it might come today. A day when the sorrows and the laments of this life will fade into the past. Honestly offer your lament to God. Don't, don't shy away. Cry out to God. Go to God in prayer and land on solid ground on a future that is fixed, that is eternal, that is perfect for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace given to us in Christ.